Good morning, everybody. My name is Mickey, and I'm a real alcoholic. I've been sober by God's mercy and His grace since February 5th of 1987, which is truly goes to show that Alcoholics Anonymous is a miracle. Um, I'm so glad to be here. What an honor and a privilege it is to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, what a privilege it is to be sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I try to keep that attitude. Uh, just hotel is just beautiful. Uh, one thing I never have lost is the desire to stay in hotels. <laughs> However, the selections that are provided for me today are a lot better than the selections I had provided for myself in the past. And uh, they, today they don't have to worry about any towels or ashtrays or bed covers being removed from this hotel. <laughs> and, uh, and I just love it. Uh, uh, Susan and Carol came and picked me up at the airport yesterday. And uh, I'm so grateful that, to see them when I got off, and we just had a wonderful time coming through. And it was very interesting. Last night I was listening to the mayor talk, and she was explaining the historic sites of Paducah. And uh, I was sitting by Carol in the audience, um, Susan in the audience, and Susan kept leaning over, and she said, We passed that, and I didn't show you. And then the mayor went on to talk about some more historical sites, and she said, We passed that, and I didn't show you that either. <laughs> But she did show me where she lived, and I thought. <laughs> so I knew immediately then she was an alcoholic of my type. <laughs> I came to my room, and there was a dozen roses on the table waiting for me that she provided, and that, that always makes you feel so welcome. And when I went to my room last night, there was a Halloween basket sitting there, and, and uh, you just always make me feel so welcome, and you know that's all I ever really wanted was to feel feel wanted. And uh, um, I was telling Sharon with Carol and Susan that on the on the plane here, you know, I, it was such a beautiful day, and uh, the trees are changing colors, and and I, I started, you know, just crying because how beautiful it was, and how neat it is to go somewhere to be wanted to, somewhere, and be missed from where I'm not. And, you know, that's just such a wonderful feeling. I was just overwhelmed, and I was crying on the airplane, and everybody was looking at me like, gosh, she must be having a death in the family or something. <laughs> and uh, it's just hard to explain how, how things can be so wonderful today. And I love the theme of this conference. You know, there, there is hope. And that was uh, amazing to me because uh, until prior to 1987, I, there was no hope. I never had any hope until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Sam talked about that last night when he talked. I loved listening to him. I, you know, I needed to laugh. And thank God for the laughter in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's so healing. So healing. I'm here today, uh, hopefully for the new person, uh, uh, and hopefully maybe for some old-timers if, if they're here, uh, to just share a little bit of me with you and to have you share you with me. And that's how this thing has worked and, and worked in my life. And I just... Love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, again, I am very privileged and honored to be here. Um, I come from an alcoholic home, as many of, of you have, and you know the, the despair and the, the craziness that goes on in that, that kind of home. My mother was uh, untreated Al-Anon, and uh, she's a lot better today, uh, and she didn't, we never knew what the problem was. You know, my father was one of those very abusive alcoholics, and he would go out and he would get drunk and he would come home. And I know a lot of times he just wanted to pass out and be left alone. And my mother was always the one that had to get that finger up there and say, Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And no one ever understood. Then the fight would start and the police would come and, and that kind of craziness and madness just went on at home. And I never really understood what was going on. But I was born with this self-centeredness of an alcoholic, you know. 
my father left when I was 10 years old, and uh, my mother had finally had had enough, thank God. Thank God she did that. And she said, you know, you either quit drinking or you leave, and he left. And I'd never understood that until I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, how he could do that. But, you know, my mother, God, I love, I love my mother so much today, and we have such a wonderful relationship. And my mother made a lot of sacrifices to raise two daughters, my sister and myself. Um, she did things that, that um, I don't know if I could have done, you know. She went to work, um, and she had to work like a man. This was back in the early 60s. And she had to take a, a man's position. Uh, she went to work for the Postal Service and carried mail. And uh, she walked 10 miles, I'm talking rain, hail, sleet, and snow, uh, in order to provide for, for uh, my sister and myself. And the self-centeredness of me being a, in that alcoholic home and me never, you know, feeling like, like I was being left out or never getting my share and why couldn't my family be like other people's family and why couldn't I have the things that other people had and why couldn't my mother wear pantyhose and dance around the kitchen, you know, when she's out there carrying mail. And I was very shamed by that. You know, I was very shamed very early as a child uh, of my family, and why couldn't I be like other people? Instead of being supportive of my mother, you know, instead of, of thanking her for what she did, the self-centeredness was, was in my home long before I ever took that first drink. And I never understood that, and today I'm so grateful for the things that my mother has done, and, and uh, I just love her with all my heart and uh, want so much for her to be happy. And I'm so proud of her today. You know, she... Uh, um, made a career out of the Postal Service and has retired from that position and, and today finally being able to enjoy some life. And thank God, you know, that's all I want for her is to enjoy some life. She really had it hard. And I think I'm so grateful for the 11th step prayer that said, Lord, help me to understand rather than be understood. And that is so true in my family. As I look back in, at my mother's life and how she was raised, and she was raised in an alcoholic home, and, you know, today I know that my mother gave me everything she had to give. And what more can you ask of a parent? My mother gave me everything she had to give. She just didn't have a whole lot herself. And the more I understand that, the more compassion and the more acceptance I have. And we just have a wonderful, beautiful relationship today. But uh, my drinking didn't start really until age 12, but I had a lot of other problems before I took that first drink. I began to steal. You know, I always felt that society wasn't fair and that, you know, um, if I couldn't buy what I wanted, I would take what I wanted. And I'm a taker. I, I like to take things, uh, especially other people's things, you know. <laughs> and I started doing that long before I ever took that first drink. And I was living in a small town in Texas, and, and uh, I was responsible for them getting those big mirrors in the corner, you know, uh, when they kept coming up with things missing so much. Uh, some of my men's have been very, very painful, I have to go back to those places. Um, but uh, I started stealing a lot, and, and I started getting into a lot of trouble at a very early age. You see, I never knew how to get positive attention by doing good things, but I knew how to get negative attention by doing bad things. And I promise you, negative attention is better than no attention. And I had to have attention. And I became the daredevil. Somebody would say, God, you can't do that. Well, by God, I'll show you I can. And uh, even if I didn't succeed, I tried very, very hard, and uh, I found myself getting in a lot of trouble. And I was always a child that uh, needed excitement in my life. I've always needed it to be excited and to be enthusiastic, and uh, I would do bizarre and crazy things uh, to, to get attention. And I like fast things and fast people, and, and uh, I never found that in those people who were going to school and making straight A's. 
So I started hanging around those people who were doing what I wanted to do, the danger of excitement, you know, that living on the razor's edge and, God, you know, the thrill of getting away with something that you shouldn't have done. And it was just, it, it was a great way to live, you know. Now, I never was crazy about when I got caught, but the, the thrill and excitement that I would have when I wouldn't get caught was worth the price. And I was doing a lot of crazy things long before I ever took that first drink, which was at the age of 12. And it was really no big deal. Uh, some friends of mine and I were walking down the street, um, and the neighbor had his garage door open. And in his garage, there were cases of long neck Miller beer. And they had been sitting there for a really long time. They were covered with dust and cobwebs. This guy couldn't have been an alcoholic, you know. But he had all this beer in there, and we went in there, and we took some of this alcohol, and we installed it, and we went down to my friend's house, and we opened this hot Miller beer, and we started drinking it, and I got that feeling. That feeling that I had been looking for. That feeling that I'm okay right where I am right now. There was no fear of the future and no pain of the past. But almost as quickly as I got that feeling, I got another feeling. And it started in my stomach. And it began, as that alcohol began to come up, we got very, very sick very, very quick. And, uh, you know, we had to be 60, 65 or 70 pound uh, children and we were drinking this alcohol. We got very, very sick. And we finally got in the house and went to bed and woke up the next morning and said, man, this is terrible, you know. And my friend looked at me and she said, I'm never going to do that again. And I never remember her doing that again. I never remember the rest of our years in high school seeing this girl tie one on. She saw what the problem was and she made the correction and she never did it again. And I looked at her that same morning and with all the same sincerity said, you know, I'm never going to do that again either. And I never did do that again. I've never drank hot Miller beer again. <laughs> but something happened to me differently than it happened for her. I didn't know that she didn't feel the same way I felt when I drank. I didn't know what was going on, and I thought she was just kind of a wimp and kind of a weakling. And, and uh, I thought that for a lot of years of my drinking. I began very quickly to, to develop the tolerance that we developed to alcohol. And I began very quickly to be able to drink some of the guys under the table. And I thought I was just cool, you know? I thought I was just tough and cool and that these people were whips, you know? I never knew that they didn't feel the same way that I felt. I didn't know that when non-alcoholics start to drink, when they start to feel the effects of alcohol, they quit. I mean, that was crazy. When I start to feel the effects of alcohol, give me more. You know, bring it on. i got to have some more. And I never, from the first time I ever drank until the time I, I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, I never knew when to quit. I drank to drunkenness every time I drank because that's where I wanted to be. That's how I wanted to be. No fear of the future and no pain of the past. I was okay right where I was at. And alcohol didn't do that for other people as it did for me. And I, I very quickly got into other drugs. Um, Sam touched on it last night, too. When I tell you I'm an alcoholic, that means I'm addicted to the feeling of intoxication. And what that tells me is that I can't stand being sober. Being sober is a miserable existence for an alcoholic. And I believe I became an alcoholic that first time I took that first drink. And uh, up until the time I quit. I quickly started smoking marijuana, and I quickly got into taking other pills, prescription pills, um, illegal black market pills, and it was uppers, and it was downers, and it was LSD, and then better living through chemistry, you know. 
uh, anything to alter the way I felt because I never could stand the way I felt. And um, a lot of things began to happen as the consequences of, of my use. At 14 years old, I started going to jail. Minor possession of alcoholic beverage, possession of marijuana. And as, as my tolerance increased to drugs, so did those crimes. But it was always somebody else's fault. It was never my fault. And I, I was never willing to take responsibility for any of that. I just wanted to let life go by and stay high and, and be there all the time. And I, things got really difficult. You know, um, as I mentioned before, how wonderful it is to be welcomed somewhere and how wonderful it is to feel a part of. And that's all I ever really truly wanted was to feel wanted and to feel needed and to feel important and to feel special. And I didn't know how to get that as a young child. And what I did was I traded all that for sex. And at the age of 16, I had my first uh, sexual experience because I wanted to feel important in someone's life, and I didn't know how to do that. So sex seemed a good way to do that, and, and I certainly uh, have rationalized and justified my life. You know, we talk so much about denial in this program, and I heard a speaker not long ago talk about the, di the difference between denial. Denial is not mentioned very much in the big book. What is mentioned is delusion, and I am deluded and stayed that way for a long, long time. I cannot ever see what the problem is. And I, I had sex with this, this young man, and I, I deluded myself into thinking that anything was wrong with that, and thinking that if I only had one partner, I couldn't get pregnant and that kind of stuff, you know? And bingo, I instantly got pregnant at the age of 16. Now, this small town I was living in in Texas is Hearn, Texas, and if you don't know where that is, that's fine. If you've ever been there, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I was in this little town in, in Texas, and this was in the early 70s, and you just didn't get pregnant if you weren't married. It was not a cool thing to do. It was not socially acceptable. Not that I was ever socially acceptable, but it, it was not socially acceptable. And there was a lot of shame, and there was a lot of um, uh, <clears throat> horrible feelings about that. And I went off to Austin, Texas, where my sister was living at that time, and went and stayed with her and had this child and gave this child up for adoption. For a lot of years, I deluded myself into believing that I did what was best for that child. Now, today I know I did do what was best for that child, but I also did what was best for me. You see, I never wanted the responsibility of my actions. I never wanted the responsibility of having to try to raise a child or to do anything that was good or be responsible for my actions. And I. It took me a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous before I realized that. But uh, that gave me a lot more reason to drink. You know, my God, uh, look what I've been through. And, and uh, the loss of control when I would begin to drink, you know. Um, I, I really never planned to be an alcoholic. I never really wanted those things to happen. But uh, I always would find a reason to drink, you know. God, the pain of giving up a child, how, how terrible it was. And I came back to that small town in Texas and, you know, I could walk out of that house and I, I'm an alcoholic and I have that built-in sixth sense that I know what people are thinking about me. And I would walk out of that little uh, house in Kern, Texas and come out and I knew what people were saying about me and I knew what people were thinking about me. And it wasn't until I got sober and in that, the freedom in that fourth and fifth step to find out that no one shamed me as I shamed myself. I condemned myself to the pit of hell for my actions, and I couldn't stand it.
I couldn't stand it. Nobody had to say a word to me. I knew what they were thinking, and I knew what they were saying. And I condemned myself to the pit of hell. And I could not walk out onto the street of Hearn, Texas, without having some form of chemicals in my body to give me the ability to say, I don't give a damn. And I tried to live like that for a long time. And I don't know how I made it through high school. Uh, if they had had that law back then that you had to be there so many days, I, I promise you I never would have been there. But I was a good test taker, and I would go to school, and I would take these tests, and somehow I, I graduated high school. And I, was gonna, I made my first geographical change 45 minutes after I graduated high school. <laughs> I was going to leave that small town in Hearn, Texas, where my problems lie. And I was going to go somewhere, and I was going to start over, and I was going to become somebody. And I was going to become somebody good and wholesome, and I was going to go away, and I was going to get married and start a family, and I was going to be somebody. And so I moved to a little town about 15 miles outside of New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, for a buddy alcoholic of my type, if you're an alcoholic of my type, New Orleans, Louisiana was not the place to go to start a good life. But I didn't know that because I didn't know what the problem was. And what I found out in New Orleans, Louisiana, was alcohol and drugs did the same thing for me there that it did for me in Texas. It made me not feel the fear of the future nor the pain of the past, and it took me places. I started visiting jails two weeks after I moved to Louisiana. Uh, some of those jails are pretty tough down there, too. And, and I never understood what the problem was. You know, if everybody would just leave me alone, just leave me alone, it's my body. I ought to be able to do with it what I want. But the law didn't seem to understand that. And they weren't, weren't very... Uh, they weren't very pleased with my performance there in Louisiana. But I did try to, I did try to change, you know. Um, I got married. Uh, that was the thing that you were supposed to do, right? So I got married. And, um, I got busted and I went to jail and the guy I got busted with, uh, we got married two days before court. Uh, so he couldn't testify against me and I couldn't testify against him. <laughs> made perfect sense to me, you know. So uh, I, we got married, and we decided that we were going to start this family, and I was going to uh, replace that child I'd given up for adoption and found out that that didn't work either. But uh, I had good plans. I had good intentions. My actions just never measured up. And I do have two beautiful children from that marriage today. God, I, you know, thank God for them. They're just, they're just wonderful, and I just love them so much too. And, but I didn't know how to make a marriage work. I didn't know how to make a family work. I didn't know how to be a mother. I didn't know how to be a wife. I didn't know how to be a parent. All I knew how to do was to, to drink and do drugs. And I found out very early one thing I, I was good at. I was very good at selling drugs. And, uh, you know, I, it was really no big deal. I didn't go out and pull kids off the playground and make them do drugs. Uh, so it was okay. And these were just my friends, my buddies. I had good connections, and I'd get them good drugs. And... And things just seemed to be working out pretty good. Uh, my friends, my compadres, my buddies, uh, the law calls that organized crime. <laughs> and they don't like that. And so I left Louisiana uh, to avoid prosecution. <laughs> you know how when you have those moments of clarity, when it says, get out, the heat is on. And so you leave in the middle of the night so no one will see you leave. And we left Louisiana and we came back to Texas and uh, I had made a lot of other poor decisions by that time. Um, I had let a friend stick a needle in my arm. Uh, it was under the influence of alcohol one day. And he came by and, and he said, have you ever tried this stuff? And I said, no. And 
he said, well, it's great. And I said, okay, you know, anything to alter the way I felt. And from that, pump, that moment on, after I put that needle in my arm, I woke up the, several days later and I knew what, what my future held. I knew that once you cross that line into the addiction to needles, that you become a junkie, I knew you were doomed to die with a needle in your arm. And there was no hope for any survival for me. I knew I was doomed to die. But I came back to Texas in 1980 and found the drug of my choice, which was methamphetamine. That drug gave me a sense of power, a sense of control. And I, I began to abuse that drug just as I did all drugs. And I began to sell those drugs. And I, my, uh, at my trial, they said I was a very successful drug dealer uh, because it took them a long time to finally get me for that. But they eventually did. And in 1986, I was uh, arrested for um, being involved in organized crime, and I was arrested for delivery of a controlled substance in 1986. None of the consequences that I ever suffered as a result of my addiction uh, were strong enough to make me stop. Going to jail never did anything but make me mad, you know? Uh, I never saw that moment of clarity. Uh, you know, there were times I would go into jail and I would get on my knees and I would say, God, please get me out of this one, you know? That was the only thing, time I knew about praying. I lived my whole entire life saying, God, serve me. Get me out of this one. Make those doors open and let me get out instead of having me serve God. And it wasn't until I came in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I learned to live a different way of life. But back in 1986, I was in that jail and I was saying those prayers and God got me out of that one. And I went back on the street and continued to do the only thing I knew how to do. I didn't know how to go to work to pay the bondsman, you know. I couldn't go get a job to do that and I couldn't get a good job to support my habit. So I continued doing what I was doing. And I've always had the unique ability also of getting in trouble when I'm in trouble, you know. And uh, I was out just a few months when I found myself rearrested and back in jail. This time I was held with no bond and I stayed in jail for a long time. You see, I never knew how to, God t to take God out of that, that jail. I left God locked up in jail. You know, God get me out of this one and then I would, this magic would happen, those doors would open and I would get out and I left God locked up in Brazos County Jail. God spends a lot of time in jail, you know. And I, I went back out and did the only thing I knew how to do. I had no plan. I had no program, no, no other way to run my life. And I was hopeless. And I ended up, and I stayed in that jail for a long time and my ex-husband filed for custody of my children. By then my divorce had definitely uh, diminished and he had gotten his act a little bit better together and he filed for custody of those children and my God I didn't want to let those children go. Those were my children. How dare you try to take them from me, you know? But thank God he did. Thank God he did. You know, I kept my children around people that my children shouldn't have been around. And my children saw things that children shouldn't see. And my children heard things that children shouldn't hear because I was so obsessed with what was going on with me and the deal was more important. And you know, I was the kind of mother that those children would come to me and they'd say, Mommy, please stay home, you know, please stay home tonight. And I would look at them with all the sincerity that a mother has for a child. I don't believe there's anything stronger than a mother's love for her children. And I would look at those children and I would say, God, baby, I'll stay home tonight. I'll stay home with you tonight. We'll watch TV. We'll play a game. We'll decorate your room. We'll do something. But somewhere along, a couple hours later, that knot would start in my stomach and that thought would come to my mind. 
the obsession to take a drink, the obsession to take a pill, the obsession to get another hit would start. And the physical symptoms of detox would begin to appear. And I had to go. And I would leave those children at home and I left those children with people they didn't need to be left with so that I could go out and do what I wanted to do. Run my life the way I wanted to run my life. Thank God he took those children from me. Thank God. And I got out of jail in, in 1986 and uh, uh, had lost everything, you know. I have a good friend of mine, she's in recovery today, thank God, that had quit coming around me. I mean, she was a drug addict and an alcoholic also, but she quit coming around me because she knew one day those feds were going to come in, and by God, they did. And they took everything that I had, you know, those things that it took to be so important. I'm an alcoholic. I'm never satisfied with anything. It's always got to be more. It's always got to be something more. I'd see that car, you know, and by God, if I had that car, I'd be okay. I'd be cool. I'd be at the top of the list. And I'd go and I'd get that car. And very quickly, it wasn't enough. So I had to go get another car. When I got arrested, they didn't take one car out of my driveway. They took three cars out of my driveway because it was never enough. Or it had to be another gold chain or it had to be another diamond ring or it had to be another something. It had to be another boyfriend. I went through lots of boyfriends after that, you know. Uh, that's another addiction, too, I found out. Um, and I like those young men, you know. <laughs> if you get them young, you can bring them into the nest, you know, and train them right. And I would go out and I would pick on some young poor guy who was down and out, and I would bring him into my home and give him the best years of my training, you know. And <laughs> do everything I could to get them right. But then they'd always get a mind of their own and they would go, you know, and do something that was not my will. And uh, so you got to get rid of them. But you don't ever get rid of them until you got one waiting, right? You can't ever be without one, right? You got to have one there all the time. And so you spend a lot of time and energy manipulating that situation of having this one going out and this one coming in. And sometimes you all three meet in the middle and that kind of that causes for some embarrassment and a little bit of humility, you know, but you just get mad at them and you make them leave and it's their fault and they didn't do right. And I, I, I abused a lot of, of people. I just abused a lot of people mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. I was a very violent drunk also, a very physically abusive alcoholic. And I... I didn't know how to do relationships. I didn't know how to bring someone into my life and build them up and make them feel better. But I knew how to tear you down. I knew how to bring you down. And if I can put you down and bring you down, I can build myself up. And that's a real sick way to live. But that's how I live my life. That's the only way I ever felt important was by putting you down and showing you where you were wrong. Never having the ability to look at my own self. And I, I walked along and went through these men, you know, and there was one young man who was left in my life. He was 24 years old. His name was Bud, and he had been through, through it all with me. He saw me lose my children. He saw me lose my possessions. He saw me uh, go to jail. Um, when I went to my plea bargaining, when I got out of jail, they offered me 20 years in the penitentiary. And I thought, God, these people are really serious, you know? <laughs> so I took it to trial. And I went through a trial by jury. You know, they say it's a jury of your peers. Huh. There wasn't anybody there I would have hung out with, I promise you. 
And they did their little jury thing, and I went through a hellacious trial, and I was found guilty of a first-degree felony, punishable by up to 99 years in the penitentiary. Now, that gets your attention a little bit, you know? Opens your eyes a little bit. And I can remember going through that trial, which was really quite humiliating, quite embarrassing. And I, I went through that trial, and I began to get an insight because they got up there and they talked about the type of person that I was. And they were right. They were right. And I knew I needed to be locked away. I knew that because I was a despicable excuse for a human being. I had never done anything good. I had done a lot of bad. And they had the right persons in that courtroom. And they came back with a guilty verdict. But, you know, that courtroom was like kangaroo court, you know. God, it was just one lie after another. I should have won a, an Oscar for the performance I, I held there that day. And uh, they came back with a, with, a, with a sentence for me that was probably the worst thing you could do to someone like me. They gave me this thing that was called probation and a $10,000 fine. And they said, you're going to live by these rules or you're not going to have another chance. And the first year that I was supposed to do was intense probation. And, you know, that feeling of they got you around the throat, they have you caught, you know, because they were going to be watching me. I was going to have to report in. I was going to have to do urinalysis. I was going to have to, you know, do things legally. They were going to be telling me what to do and how to run my life. And, my God, I was so angry. That's how sick I was. I was so angry when I walked out of that courtroom that day. I would have rather had gone to the penitentiary, done my few months, you know, 20 years, uh, you do a few months nowadays, go in there and do a few months and come back out and do what I wanted to do with my life. I was so blinded and so ignorant, I could not see. And uh, Bud stayed with me through that whole time. He, he watched me come out of there. And he came to me one night after I had gotten this sentence, and he came to me one night in this little house I was having to leave because I lost. There was no electricity. There was no running water. There was no gas. It was February, and it was cold. And we had a little lamp lit there. And, and he said, what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do? He said, you've lost everything, and look at you. Look what you're doing. And I'm sitting there with a bottle in one hand and a needle in the other. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I'll worry about it tomorrow. It was always tomorrow I'll worry about it. Today, I need to be right here. And he asked me stupid questions. He said, what is life about? And I said, I, you know, just get away. Just leave me alone. I don't know. You know, I had no answers. I was always a person with an answer, and I had none for this young man. And he said, what about your children? What about your mother? What about your life? What are you going to do? And I didn't know, and I came, became very angry. And when you pointed out fault in me, I attacked you. And I attacked him. And he said, I can't live like this anymore. I'm leaving. And I cussed that young man like a dog. Cussed him like a dog. You know, you got to make that grandstand play. I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. Just leave me alone and get out of here. And he left. And I went back into that dark house and did the only thing I knew how to do. Stick needles in my arm and drink it away and I'll worry about it tomorrow. Five hours later, the sun came up and I went outside and I found the problems to my pain and my, the solution to my problems and my pain. Bud's body hung from a tree limb with a rope around his neck. 
and he was dead, and he'd been dead for several hours. I can't tell you what terror gripped me that morning when I saw what was the result of this disease that we have. A lot of people told me a lot of ridiculous things about his death. They told me he was a coward, that he couldn't handle it, that he couldn't cope. They told me that he was a chicken, that he couldn't make it, you know, he just couldn't stand it, and that he wasn't cool. Well, I'm going to tell you what, I can take a lot of pain, and I can take a lot of physical abuse, and I can take a, I can, I'm a very brave person, I've done a lot of crazy things. And it's not about being brave, and it's not about being a coward. It's about being in so much emotional pain that death sounds like a good idea. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about when men make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And I believe he made the supreme sacrifice so that I could be here today. There's a high price for my, my sobriety today, and I definitely do not take it for granted. I heard someone say one time that any alcoholic or addict that dies drunk and using buys another alcoholic sobriety. Well, I know who bought mine. The price was high. He should be the one standing here talking today, not me. He never did those terrible things that I did. But he's gone. And I pray to God for his peace that he so desperately sought for. And my God today is a forgiving God. People say that, you know, suicide is the unforgivable sin, but I, I, can't, I can't see that today. I believe that my God understood and that my God forgives him for his actions. But something happened to me that day. Something happened that I could not erase. You see, I took full responsibility for this young man's suicide. And today I still take part of that responsibility, and that's why I'm here today, to share a little bit of that. He, uh, he saved my life with his death. And something happened, and, and uh, I can't really explain it, but I couldn't erase what had happened. Every time I took a drink, every time I took that syringe and put it in my arm, it just came back more and more. I would hear his voice calling me. I would hear him laughing. I would hear him saying, what are you doing with your life? And I couldn't, I couldn't run. I ran and I ran and I ran, and I couldn't run away from it. It was just all there. And I kept thinking about those children, and I was thinking about that mother, and I would try to erase it, but the alcohol and the drugs quit working. Thank God. Thank God. But it left me with such an insanity that I thought I would never return. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't hold a thought. I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak. I would be in the middle of a sentence and forget what I was saying. And I was just sick, and I was crazy, and I wasn't sleeping, and I wasn't eating, and I was just running. I had been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in 1986 because I knew it would look good when I went to court. I'm sure y'all don't have that experience in Kentucky. <laughs> but I had gone to an AA meeting before, and I, I had tried to listen to what you people were saying, but I could not hear the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was one guy who was sitting at this meeting that I had gone to, and, and he began to share. You know how you do in newcomers' meetings. You share what it was like and what happened and what it's like now, which is basically what I'm doing. But he came and he said, uh, he, he started crying during this meeting. And I thought, God, you know, what a wimp. Jesus, this guy is crying. And I, I felt ashamed for him, you know, that he would sit in front of all these people and cry. 
I had never been given the gift of tears, but this young, this man was crying. He said, you know, he, he was drinking and it got so bad and his wife left him and he just couldn't handle it anymore. And so he came to AA and he put the plug in the jug and life was wonderful. And he was crying. And I thought, Jesus, what a wimp. You know, one wife, one time, jeez, you know. And this one girl in the back jumped up and she was so excited. She had gotten a job and she would, you know, had enough money now and she was going to buy a car and how life had changed for her. And she couldn't decide which color to get, a blue one or a red one, you know. And I said, God, go take both of them, you know, help. And I'm sure that's not what they said and I'm sure that's not what they meant, but that's what I heard, you know. And I thought I was too bad for Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought I had gone way too far for a program plan of recovery. And I stayed about nine days and, you know, going, using drugs and going to meetings just doesn't seem to work. And I, I left there thinking that this, this was just, you know, t not for someone as cool as I was or as tough as I was. But something happened as I was driving around in December of 1986 um, toward January of 1987. I was no longer able to get high, I was no longer able, able to erase those feelings. And I don't know what night it was exactly that I got sober. I, I can't remember. I claim my sobriety date is February 5th because that's the day I started probation. That's the day I know from that day on that I did not use. But I don't remember what night it was. It was somewhere around that time that I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I was driving around in this truck that I had, and I'll tell you about that truck in a few minutes. But I was driving around this truck I had, and I finally began to cry. The gift of tears began to happen in my life, and I began to cry. And I had to pull over to the side of the road because once I started to cry, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. It was just coming, and I, I couldn't control. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was going to choke to death. You know, I thought I was going to cry myself to death. And I pulled over to the side of the road, and I laid down in the seat of that truck, and I just started crying, and I cried, and I cried. And a few minutes later, I sat up and I, and I looked around and kind of had that dazed feeling. And then it kind of was like that deja vu feeling. And I knew I had been there before, but I couldn't quite remember where it was. And then it finally hit me that I was outside of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that I had been to many years, many months before. And I looked at, a, at the watch that I had on and it said it was a quarter to eight. And I re had remembered that meeting started at eight o'clock. And I can't tell you what force or what power came over me that I didn't know that was the last place I wanted to go. But there was something inside of me that demanded that I go in there, that I knew I somehow needed to be there. And I got out of this truck and it was raining and it was, it was wet and it was cold. And I started up that sidewalk and I fell halfway up there and I literally crawled my way into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on my hands and knees as I entered that door. And those people in those meetings had seen me before and uh, knew where I was coming from and they knew what had happened and they knew about my conviction. And they didn't run over to me and say, let us help you up, you wonderful child of God. <laughs> they came over to me and they looked down their noses at me and they said, have you had enough? <laughs> Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And my God, I was. I was. And they helped me get up after that, and I went in there. And all I can really remember is they said, keep coming back. And if you don't put any more of that stuff in your system, it'll change. They never told me it got better. They said it'll change. 
And I came in Alcoholics Anonymous that I promise you looking nothing like I am today or not driving a car like I drive today. I had this old truck. And I told you when I got arrested, they took everything that I had. Well, the only reason they didn't take this truck was because they didn't want it. <laughs> I helped a guy out one time in one of my drug deals. You know, a guy, um, I gave him a half a gram of dope and he gave me this truck. Now, if you're not cost me $12.50, and I got ripped off. But I felt sorry for this guy, you know, he was younger. I, I had this truck in there. This truck had been sunk in a water tank for, uh, had to be a lengthy period of time because the bottom was all rusted out. And the bottom of the floorboard, so the stuff was, the only place you had to put your feet were on the pedals. And it was one of those trucks, it was a big Dodge Ram truck, you know, and, and it used to have power. It had wires coming out of places wires weren't supposed to be the time. And it was one of those you'd get it cranked up and take you about 10 or in to go into this first AA meeting, I promise you. And you'd get it cranked up and, and, and I had wanted it to look a little bit better, you know, it's important how you look. So I filled some of the dents in with Bondo, you know. But every time you hit a railroad track, boy, a Bondo would come flying out. I sold the license plates. I don't know where they came from, don't know where to make amends for them. And I don't know why I felt the need. I heard somebody mention rigorous honesty, so I sold the inspections so I could have that in there to appear legal. And I came bouncing into alcoholics. And I tell you, uh, there was a guy that's a good, wonderful friend of mine now, and he said he leaned over to the guy next to him and said, boy, things are fixing up. I walked into that first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with these either skin-tight blue jeans that were painted on or black leather pants tucked in my knee-high boots that had a brass tip on the end of them because I was cool. All my attire was basic black and I had this black t-shirt in that either had, you know, live to ride and ride to live and the good, you know, live hard and die young and that kind of stuff and with the sleeves cut out and the neck cut out down to here. And I wore this big leather jacket with this fringe hanging off of it and this big biker jacket and I had this outlaw hat pulled way down over my eyes and I always wore sunglasses because it was always a little bit too bright if the light was on, you know. <laughs> and I came in, I had this wallet in my back pocket with this chain that hung down to my knee and clipped up over here on my, my black leather belt that was studs all over it. And over on this hip I had a big wad of keys so I made a lot of noise when I walked. Now my truck started with a screwdriver, but I had this big lot of keys over here. No problem with self-centeredness or wanting to be the center of attention, right? When I walked in someplace, I wanted you to know I was there. And I came crawling into Alcoholics Anonymous like this. You see, all of that was my defense. That was my defense. If I put on this hardcore exterior, I could keep you out here. That way you couldn't come in here. Because if you came in here, you might hurt me. And it took me a long time in alcohol to strip it off. I still have those leather pants, and I still have that leather jacket, but today I'm able to let you in. I still ride. I uh, ride motorcycles, and there's a group of us that, that ride, and uh, that don't drink and don't do drugs, and today I'm able to, to understand that it never was a Harley Davidson that got me loaded. It never was a tattoo that got me loaded. It was me 
and it was my attitude and it was my illness. And uh, today I, I'm free from that. Um, I don't have to live like that anymore. But I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I said I was pretty wild. And they said it would change and it did. I went through a physical withdrawal in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when they say AA can love you sober, they mean it. They mean it. I did not have the ability to go into a treatment facility or a detox center. Drug dealers don't have hospitalization and insurance policies. <laughs> and I didn't have twenty dollars or $30,000 staff for the rainy day when I needed to go to treatment. My probation officer tried to get me into the Austin State Hospital and they had a three-month waiting list. And I couldn't have waited three more months because the alcohol and the drugs was no longer working and I had nothing to hang on to. So the judge had committed me to attend 90 meetings in 90 days of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well, I'll show that SOB. I went to one meeting a day for that judge and I went to one meeting a day for me. For the first time in my life, I started doing something for me that was good. And it certainly helped out a lot of people in my home group. <laughs> I tell a lot of people, I kept, I kept those people in my home group sober for a long time. It took everything they had to deal with me and my attitude when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. They began to, to, they got me through that sickness. I was physically sick for about six weeks due to detox and also the, the drugs that I was doing. Uh, by then I had started shooting Dilaudas to come down from the speed, which is synthetic heroin, so I had major massive withdrawals. I threw up on myself in meetings. The women alcoholics and alcoholics anonymous would come to me and clean me up and tell me to keep coming back. Just keep coming back. They took me into their homes and fed me. They just held me through their worst time in my life. And I used to love to go to the Friday night meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous at the Bryan Group because there was an Al-Anon meeting upstairs. And I used to love to climb those stairs with those keys rattling. And I would walk past that Al-Anon room just to hear them cringe when I walked by. <laughs> Looking forward to going to that Al-Anon, uh, that Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on Friday night and terrorizing those Al-Anons kept me sober for a good while. Today, I'm so grateful for the Al-Anon Al people in my life today. Uh, I, too, got well enough to go to Al-Anon, and I go there because it helps me not only to live with you, but to help live with the, the alcoholism that I have created in my own family. And uh, I'm so grateful for the Al-Anons. They've been so helpful and supportive to me and were very tolerant of me. My mouth was extremely bad when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I have tried to really work on that. I had a very filthy, vulgar mouth. and so. For the first three months in Alcoholics Anonymous, all they would let me do is read how it worked because there were no cuss words in how it worked. However, I would interject one every now and then if it seemed appropriate. And I, I began uh, just coming to meetings for the first few, few months was all that I could do was to get up and get to uh, two or three meetings a day. Thank God in our area we have uh, at least 95 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous a week in our area. And I would go and I would live at the, I just lived up at the, at the Brazos Club there and just hang around, you know, sitting on my hands and shaking and cringing and, and being sick. And I just hung around long enough for the miracle to happen. If you are anywhere where I was, if you are new in this program, this too shall pass. And it did. It passed. And then I became a chronic complainer. <laughs> I would sit in the back of the room in the meetings, and I would sit in the back of the room, and once I started feeling a little bit better, you know, I would start talking to the people next to me. I'm really loud, you guys, you know? 
And I would start talking to the people next to me on this side, and then I would start talking to the people next to me on this side, and, and pretty soon I'm disrupting the whole meeting, and they're trying to calm me down. And finally one day Charlie came up to me, and I'm sure y'all each have a Charlie in your group. You know, that sucker that has an answer for everything, you know. Uh, you, tells you all those things you don't want to hear, but Charlie came up to me at a meeting and he said, Mickey, why don't you fix your coffee and come sit over here by us, up front? And I thought, well, they finally want to hear someone with some real experience, you know? <laughs> Which I definitely had, and so I went and I fixed my coffee and I sat up there next to Charlie by the chairman, and Charlie leaned over to me and lovingly and firmly said, sit here and shut up and listen. I was so outraged, I sat there and shut up and listened. And Charlie probably saved my life, because I don't get better. My, and today, I was telling Susan, you know, she said, where do you want to sit for the meeting last night? Front row. My sponsor makes me sit on the front row, because then I can't, I'm not distracted by what's going on behind me, or who's here, or who's coming in. If I'm sitting on the front row and looking straight, I'm paying attention. And I had a hard time paying attention when I first got sober. And I, I, was, I was hanging around AA meetings and I, I was unemployable, couldn't work, didn't know what I was going to do. And I, I began to complain about the state of my affairs and poor pitiful me and how horrible life was and how, what a rotten deal I had gotten. And uh, this woman came up to me after the meeting and she said, Mickey, I just need to tell you, you're full of shit. <laughs> And I looked at that woman, and I couldn't believe that she had, had said such a thing like this, you know, to talk about being kind and AA and that kind of stuff. And these people were vicious with me. <laughs> and my mouth opened, and this voice came out that I sounded like mine that said, Will you be my sponsor? <laughs> now, I had been told I needed a woman sponsor, but I hated women, particularly this one. She had been a whack in the army, and she was cruel, and she was mean, and she, you know, would look at you with that look that they have, you know, when they've been sober for a while. And she said, she looked at me and she said, I don't like you, but I will help you because that's what I have to do to stay sober. And she said, and don't you dare tell anyone I'm your sponsor. <laughs> kind of cool looking back because a lot of people thought I was staying sober on my own. <laughs> but I got with this woman and this woman made me call her every day, um, made me go to those probation appointments. My probation officer, thank God for her today, thank God for her that she had a basic understanding of the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction and she was able to lay out a plan of recovery for me to recover not only from my alcoholism and my addiction, but Bud's suicide also, which was a major factor at that time, and the loss of my children, and how to get back into society, how to become a productive member of society. She began to lay out a plan for me, as Alcoholics Anonymous did. And she got me to the right people that I needed to see and began to gain a basic understanding of the illness that I have. And uh, she really was, has been a great support. And every February 5th, I call her wherever she's at and tell her thank you because she was very instrumental. She had me come in to see her every other day for the first three months that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous to make sure that I was okay. Her greatest fear was that I would take my own life, and I had that fear also. 
I didn't know that I could just go on one more day. But you gave me that hope. You told me if you don't do or drink today, if you don't use today, you can make it, honey, just today. And sometimes it was hour by hour and minute by minute that I just held on and hang on to the hope that you had, that you gave me, that I could have this thing too. And I began to, I was called this sponsor daily, and I began, she began, she said, we have to begin to work the steps. And before I could begin to work the steps, I had to, you know, I had nothing left. And, and uh, the miracle after miracle happened the first three months of my recovery, that I was able to pay rent for this little apartment that I was living in, $200, all bills paid. It's a great place to, but you know, it was a wonderful place for me to get sober because that's exactly where I needed to be, stripped of all my possessions of all the things that I thought it took to be important. And uh, I began to uh, go to meetings and I uh, went to a meeting and uh, I told my sponsor, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do about next month's rent. And she said, get a job. I thought, well. So I went to the new meeting the next day and I, they said, are there any AA-related announcements? And I said, yes, I need a job. You see, when I came into my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and you told me I was the most important thing there, I knew it. <laughs> And so I would interrupt me and I said, yes, I need a job. And they said, well, what do you know how to do? I said, well, weights and measures, you know. <laughs> I know a little bit about sales. <laughs> you know, uh, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I had no social skills, you know, none at all. Uh, it reminds me, you know, talking about my alcoholism and my drinking, uh, some of the girls came over to my house not long ago and and they were talking about this social drinking thing, you know? The only social thing I ever did was spread a little VD, you know? <laughs> That's the extent of my social skills. I found out where that free clinic was, too. <laughs> I had no social skills. I knew that. I didn't know how to get out there and work and, and have a job and be productive. You know, and Alcoholics Anonymous be, began to, to help me with that. And uh, this guy came up to me after that noon meeting and he said, Mickey, he said, uh, I can get you a job. It's not, doesn't pay very much. It's not very clean. It's hot and sweaty. And I said, I'll take it. I'll do anything. You, you, you see, at 60, 90 days sober, I was willing and ready to do whatever it took for me to live one more day. And I've had that attitude since I have been sober. Thank God. Thank God. And if I don't have that faith, I get it from you to go on one more day to see what tomorrow has. See what tomorrow has. And I, I began to uh, uh, work in a sink factory, drilling holes in marble sinks where the faucet could come out. I know a lot of us have respected our toilet, but please respect your sink also. <laughs> and I was the best sinkhole driller on that line, I tell you. I went to work and I had to punch a time clock and I was never late because I began to learn some of the discipline that it takes in Alcoholics Anonymous for us to become a, a human being. And I would come to, I, I would go to work and I, I began uh, to work the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous also. And my life began to change. My life began to change. And I don't have to work in that sink factory anymore today. And I'm a, uh, I'm a productive member of society today. A society that I had always damned and never wanted to be a part of. Today I'm part of that. Um, I began to uh, work the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the first step told me what the problem was. I never knew what the problem was, but the first step lines it out completely. I am powerless over alcohol. When I take that first drink, I don't know what's going to happen. 
I don't know where I'm going to end up. I don't know who I'm going to end up with. You know, I always hated coming out of those blackouts. God, you know, waking up, wondering how the hell you got there, wondering where you are, wondering where you've been, wondering who you're with, you know. Uh, I always hated that. And, and I found out at the first step uh, that I'm powerless over alcohol and that my life is unmanageable. I knew that my life was unmanageable. It was quite evident to everyone. But that's not the kind of life that we're talking about in here. We talk about our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions being unmanageable or uncontrollable. That I can't control my, my thinking or my feelings, and I'm doing things that I don't want to do, and I'm not doing the things I need to do. And I came to step two and found out what the solution was. That a power greater than myself could restore me to some kind of same thinking, same feelings, and same behavior. And I, I came to believe in that by seeing it in you. You gave me that hope. And then I began to work to take the action. And step three, I made a decision. Do I want to keep doing what I'm doing or do I want to try a different way of life? And I knew I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. There was nowhere else to go. I had been down in that bottom for so long, going from side to side, you know, and it was time to do something, either go all the way down or come up. And I made a decision to try to do what the sponsor told me to do, to do what you suggested me to do, and to just do it. And I began to do that. And I made the decision in the third step. And in the fourth step, uh, I really didn't want to do that. Um, I had done a lot of wrong things. But my sponsor said, I don't want to know every time you went left when you were supposed to go right. I want to know how you think. I want to know the exact nature of your wrongs. And so we began to do it, and I did the fourth step exactly as it's lined out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know a better way to do it. And I, I began to do that, and in the fifth step, I went to that sponsor and found the exact nature of my wrongs and the character defects. And I know a lot of people say it's some spiritual experience they have when they get through with that fifth step. I didn't have that. I was left with incomprehensible demoralization. <laughs> because I saw for the first time what kind of person I truly was. But that gave me the freedom in step six and seven. I knew exactly what was wrong with Mickey and I knew what needed to be changed. In step six and seven, the light came on for me because by God, I can do this. As long as you're not my problem and society is not my problem, I can change me. That's the only thing I have the power, power to do today is to change me. And I got to steps eight and nine, and I began to, to have to make amends. And one of my biggest amends was my community. You know, I thought I was going to have to leave my, my community in order to get sober and straight. I had too much credit out there. I knew too many people. I knew, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it was the old-timers at AA who sat me down and said, you will not leave this community. You will look this community in the eye, and you will pay back what you have done. And I have done that and I continue to do that to the best of my ability. I volunteer not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I, am, I volunteer for services within the community. I began to work with young people in the detention centers. And I began to, to work with families of alcoholics. And I began to learn and, and uh, was somehow God began to lead me in the direction to where things were just dumped in my lap. And I began to study the, the illness of alcoholism. Uh, in the alcoholic as well as the family also, God saw fit that uh, I'd be put in a position to where I, I found myself taking some tests and 
learning about this illness and the next thing I know I have a few initials behind my name and today I hold the position of being director of a chemical dependency program in a psychiatric hospital in the community that I did the most damage. Today I... Thank God you never gave up on me. Thank God. My probation officer never gave up on me either. At uh, three and a half years sober on a 10-year sentence, I went back before that judge and he released me from the bondage of the state of Texas. And I walked out of a courtroom a free woman, a free woman. My probation officer made me carry on with that. And she said, take it one step further. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you need to apply for a pardon. You have helped our community so much. You need to apply for a pardon. And I went to the local community members, the leaders of our community, and they gave me letters of support. Now I could die today and be rested at peace with just the support that I've gotten from the people in my community. The people that I hated all of my life, the judges, the lawyers, the, the, those type of people, um, bankers, uh, all kinds of people who offered me letters of support. I even got a letter of support from uh, when I got off probation from uh, the head of the narcotics task force that arrested me. He said he did not really not believe in recovering, uh, rehabilitating someone as myself, but he had never seen anything like this in his life. You know, what powerful program Alcoholics Anonymous is. It takes an animal like me and turns it into a productive member of society. I did the footwork that was necessary, and in May of 1992, I was approved by the Board of Pardons and Paroles to receive a full pardon for my crimes in the state of Texas. What a freedom, you know. I'm still waiting on the governor of, of the state of Texas, Ann Richards, to sign my pardon or not sign it. I've been waiting for two years, extremely patient. <laughs> and if y'all don't know the governor of the great state of Texas, Ann Richards, I'm not breaking her anonymity. She's done it herself. She proclaims herself to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, as I said, I've been waiting two years for her to sign this deal or not sign it. And I thought about calling up and trying to find out who her sponsor was. <laughs> but my sponsor won't let me do that. <laughs> so I just keep doing the next right thing and doing what's asked of me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I did do the deal that was suggested of me in, in uh, my first year of sobriety. My sponsor told me for the first year to do the three M's and not get involved in a relationship. She said, you don't know how to do relationships. She said, so you do the three M's. I said, the three M's? And she said, yeah, you go to meetings, you meditate, and you masturbate. <laughs> you really learn a lot about yourself in that first year of sobriety. But at 13 months sober, I began to date, and I got into a relationship with a younger man, of course. Some things never changed. And we stayed in a relationship for four years, and it ended, and uh, it ended because we began to grow separate ways, you know? I think that's why my sponsor told me for, to stay out of a relationship for that first year, because you grow and you change so much, and your ideas change so much. And another basic reason is I had to stay out of a relationship is I had to quit using other people to make me feel good. And I had to take it that time to begin to develop a relationship with God a God of my understanding, a God that I can take with me out of my house and onto the street and allow to work in my life on a daily basis. And that's been a real growing 
uh, relationship that I have today. Um, I got out of that relationship after four years and everything was fine and great until he started dating my sponsoree. Then <laughs> that ego came back and I was filled with jealousy that I had, had not experienced since I'd been sober. Those defects of character still are there and I had to begin to once again uh, work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as I continue to do every year. I held a meeting the other day, chaired a meeting, and I, I asked everybody what step they were on. If you're not on a step, you're not working the program, in my opinion, and in my sponsor's opinion. So I always have to be working on a step. And I, I got out of that relationship, and uh, they're getting married today. <laughs> Thank God I'm here, huh? <laughs> but I have made peace with them, and I had a good long visit with them last weekend. Um, it took me a quite a while be, to be able to do that, but thank God. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago that I went to this woman, and uh, the reason I was so angry was because I don't know what hurt worse, leaving him or losing her. And I love her so much, I still miss her, but I couldn't be her sponsor anymore. I, I just couldn't. It was too painful. And um, um, I'm at peace with that today, too. And I, I know she's going to be a beautiful bride, and I know they're going to have a wedding. And, and this morning, my prayers wish them the best and the happiness that I look for. I've been through a, a lot of terrible things since I've been sober. Last year was a really emotional year for me, as, as I talked about. And uh, my daughter, uh, my son came back to live with me when I was five years sober because he wanted to. My daughter came back to live with me a year ago uh, in May because she wanted to. She's 15, and after she came out, came to live with me because of the relationship that we have today, because of the relationship you gave me with my children, by doing the things I needed to do at Alcoholics Anonymous, my daughter came to me and told me last year in November that while she was living with me, a friend of mine's 15-year-old son had raped her repeatedly. When she, I tell you, I wanted to die. I wanted to die, and I wanted to kill, and I wanted to maim. But what you told me to do was to do the next right thing and to get my child the help that she needed because that was my responsibility. And so I went and I, I got my, my child the help that she needs today. She's in professional counseling and she sees professional people. And thank God she was able to come to me and talk to me. I never could, have, I never could do that with my mother until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. She came and shared with me and talked to me and I'm able to get her to help. Thank God she didn't have to wait till she's 40 or 50 years old before she comes out with that. And she's able to get the help she, she needs today. And you have loved my children so much. Uh, my daughter, like I said, she's 15. We were at a sober dance one night and she saw him across the crowded dance floor. He, he had been sober uh, almost a year. You know, they're coming in so young into the program nowadays. Thank God. Thank God. And uh, she latched a hold of him and took him hostage, as uh, we know how to do. And uh, when he got right after a year of sobriety, he relapsed, and she took that real personally. And I was able to come home and hug her and tell her how much I loved her and how sorry I was. And I leaned over and I picked up the phone and called Al-Anon, some of my Al-Anon women friends, the ones I used to terrorize. And they came and they picked my daughter up at the age of 14 and took her to Al-Anon. They never said, oh, it's only puppy love. 
They never said, oh, you're too young. You took her to Al-Anon and began to expose her to the program to set her free. And she still goes to Al-Anon. This year, I thought this year when 1994 came, I said, man, this is going to be a great year. This is going to be wonderful. I got 93 past me. And I came into 94, and in March of this year, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I thought, Lord, they say God won't give you more than you can bear. Well, I am flattered. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Live with two alcoholic teenagers and went with these problems, and, and now I have cancer. And I, t- I tell you, uh, Sam talked last night, and he hit so home with me. Thank God I don't have to go through this alone. Thank God. I went to the doctor with some minor problems, and um, I went in the next day for a biopsy that came to be proven as cancer. Uh, and when I came out of the waiting room, you were sitting there in the waiting room waiting for me when I got, and when the doctor had diagnosed me with cancer. The first doctor I said told me if it had spread anywhere else that it would be, he gave me eight months to a year to live. My first thought when I stumbled out of that doctor's office was, God, I'm not through yet. I'm not through yet. And I, I came in uh, out of there, and 45 minutes after I knew I had cancer, my house was crawling with alcoholics and Al-Anon, and you have never left my side. I could not have gone through what I have gone through this year without you at my side. And what you did was uh, I, I went to a hospital at MD Anderson in Houston, and uh, the doctor there r- ran all those tests that you have to run. Uh, I said, those doctors have boldly gone where no man has gone before. (laughs) I mean, they really check you out. And uh, they checked me out, and I had had colorectal cancer. I said, that's from so many years of men blowing smoke up my butt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I still have a problem with men in relationships today. The big book explains it so specifically to me. It tells me exactly what the problem is uh, about men. It says they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. No, I'm I'm not trying to place any blame. Uh, Somebody came up to me and asked me if I was angry at God for me having cancer. And I thought, how absurd. Why would I be angry with God? God is not my problem. God is my solution. God is my salvation. How could I have possibly go through what I had to go through to live one more day without the strength and the courage from God? Courage is that you take the action. It doesn't mean you don't have fear. It means you take the action in spite of the fear. And I was afraid. God having cancer, you know, is such a scary thing. I went through five weeks of radiation and chemotherapy, and what you did was you took off work, and you took me every day, 220 miles round trip, you took me every day so I could get my radiation and my chemotherapy in Houston, and you brought me home. And the Al-Anon and the Alcoholic Women and Alcoholics Anonymous got together and you brought food to my home to feed my children because I was too sick to cook. That stuff really does you in. And I went through the five weeks of radiation and chemotherapy, and I came out and I went through, and in July, um, I, had can- uh, I had cancer surgery, and uh, I had to trade my life for a bag that I have to wear with a, a permanent colostomy. Now, I didn't want to do that either. I didn't want to do that. But I don't want to die today. My God, I have a life for the first time that is worth living. 
I have a life that I want to live. I have a life for the first time in my life. I want to be who I am exactly as I am right now. And what am I? Wonderful person? Superhuman being? No. I'm a precious child of God. God didn't do this cancer to me. This is a physical thing. But I believe physical problems have spiritual answers also. And I began to work more on my 11th step, which, which is where I am now. God helped me to strengthen my relationship with you, to get me through what I have to go through. They told me this was the second worst surgery you could have. I believe it, and I don't know, want to know what the first is. <laughs> but I promise you, I had the ability to lay home in my bed. You go to the doctor, you say you have cancer, they'll give you whatever drugs you want. And I was scared to death to take those drugs. My sponsor had to make me take those drugs because I was in so much pain. I was so scared to death. So scared to death. But Susan mentioned to me yesterday, and it's true, when you are in the pain, you don't become addicted. I was on morphine for four months and able to stop without any problem because that was all I needed it for. That was all I, I could use it for. And I quit taking it even before the pain had subsided because I was so afraid. But I made it through. Um, I'm still going through chemotherapy today. Uh, I will start Monday on my third cycle. My hair is falling out falling out in places I don't want it to fall out and staying in the places where I don't need it. But somebody said, you know, I told them, I said, my hair's falling out. And they said, that's okay, it'll grow back. And I said, you didn't hear what I said. My hair is falling out. And that's okay, you know. I mean, it really is going to be okay because I know you will love me regardless of what happens. My work got together and they donated their sick time and their vacation time and gave me three months off of work so that I could go through that radiation and chemo and go through that surgery and recover without having to worry about a paycheck. They wouldn't have done that to that person who stumbled into Alcoholics Anonymous with that arrogance and that ego and that self-centeredness. I thank God for them today too. It's so wonderful to be here. I know I've talked for way longer than I should have. But I wanted you to know how grateful I am to be here today, to be alive, to see what tomorrow is going to hold for me. Because I know God has wonderful plans for me, and I know he has wonderful plans for you. It doesn't mean that we skate through life without pain. It means that we, we can get through the pain with the love of God and the love of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll close in saying in memory of March W., who left us with 20 years of, 27 years of continuous sobriety. I'm probably not what I should be, and I'm probably not what I could be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Thank you for having me here in Oakland, Kentucky.